0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. I made a mistake in not recusing myself immediately from the discussions given uh, our family's history. And I'm sincerely sorry about not having done that.
2: That was the apology from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, yesterday morning, actually. We had it for you just towards the end of our show. And, of course, he has been facing an enormous amount of backlash after the news became public that his government, the Cabinet, had decided to award a huge contract, something like $900 million, to a charity that had also, in recent years, paid immediate members of the Prime Minister's family for speaking engagements, yeah, that did not look well. Also, he did not recuse himself from the discussions about awarding that contract around the cabinet table. Also, an apology yesterday from Finance Minister Bill Morneau for the same reasons. It turns out, uh, Bill Morneau's children work for the same charity. Well, for more on this developing story, we're joined now by Global National Ottawa correspondent Abigail Beeman. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. It sounds like there were apologies all around yesterday.
3: That's true. The uh, Prime Minister was pretty clear yesterday morning that he wanted to uh, apologize for not recusing himself uh, from the Cabinet discussions around the decision to award we this contract uh, to administer a program worth close to $8 billion uh, for the uh, Student Summer Grant program. He said that he's particularly sorry for the young people who now have to wait longer uh, for this program to unfold as the uh, government tries to figure out how to uh, move forward with it. And he said that he was uh, sorry that he involved his mother in a way that he said was unfair uh, to her. And he referenced, you know, her good work around mental health. Uh, she's been an advocate a, a, on that for years. So a few apologies around that um, from him. And then you mentioned as well the finance minister tweeted an apology using some similar language a few hours later uh, in the day, talking about how he also should have, rec- he apologized for not recusing himself from cabinet discussions. Uh, and he referenced uh, that he should have been aware of the perception of a potential uh, conflict. He has two daughters, one of whom uh, works for the organization. He points out for a separate arm of the organization and uh, another daughter who has uh, spoken at WE events. So is this
2: the end of it, though, Abigail? I would imagine that there's still questions for members of cabinet as well. For instance, they were talking about this. Were they aware that the prime minister and the finance minister had these close relationships with this organization?
3: It's yeah. There's certainly still many questions uh, to that particular question about uh, cabinet ministers uh, being aware. Uh, my our colleague David Aiken asked every single one of them and got radio silence uh, on that front. That's probably about a week ago uh, now. But in terms of questions going forward, well, the ethics commissioner is investigating, so that will certainly be something to watch. Uh, the conservatives uh, have called for the RCMP to investigate. They're not commenting, or the RCMP is not commenting uh, about that. But we'll see. Uh, if anything happens there. And uh, the Prime Minister has also been called on to testify in front of committee, a highly unusual move to have the Prime Minister answer questions Mm -hmm. uh, in that form. Interestingly, uh, yesterday at his news conference, the Prime Minister did not shut down that idea. So we will see uh, if he agrees to that to move forward with that. But certainly several avenues uh, for this story as it moves forward.
2: Right. So this clearly is not the end then.
3: No, no. And the other part of the story to mention uh, is is the WE charity and the WE organization. And uh, Mark and Craig Kielberger, the founders uh, of this organization, took out full-page ads in some newspapers yesterday, and they put the same statement on, on their website. They uh, said that they wanted to set the record straight and answer some questions and that they have made some mistakes, which they sincerely regret. But worth noting, this is clearly, you know, on their terms, a highly controlled narrative. Uh, I asked for an interview. They've so far declined. Our interview saying telling me yesterday that they're just not doing interviews right now uh so we'll see what happens going forward but a number of questions from for that organization as well
2: okay so despite those apologies then from both the prime minister and the finance minister it doesn't sound like this is going away anytime soon so we have to wait and see what those hearings might ha- wait until
3: that's right the, the hearings and and what the ethics commissioner eventually finds
2: all right abigail thank you so much Thank you. That is Abigail Beeman, our Global National Ottawa correspondent, bringing us up to date on what has been happening. Yet another ethics investigation for the Prime Minister. I believe this will be the third. First being, I think, the helicopter rides on the vacation. The second being, of course, the SNC-Lavalin situation. And now this We Charity situation. Uh, So there is more to come on that.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: We're learning an awful lot about our food supply during this pandemic situation, things that you probably never thought of before, because we took for granted the availability and relative affordability of the food in our grocery stores. But now we're learning just how critical things like temporary foreign workers are to the industry as a whole. Well, the first of two reports on temporary foreign workers in Canadian agriculture was actually released this morning. And joining us now to talk more about what they found is one of the authors of the That study, it's Robert Falconer, a researcher at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. Robert, thank you very much for joining us. Happy to join. Now, in reading through this report, it's pretty clear that what we've noticed here and paid attention to is the fact that there's a lot of vulnerabilities in our food production system.
4: Yes, absolutely. Uh, One of the big key key, key things that we notice in the report is that uh, right now should be the, the time of year in which temporary farm workers are arriving to Canada to begin helping farmers with the onset of the full agricultural season. So this is especially relevant in B.C., where, of course, we have a lot of involvement of, of temporary farm workers in, in the cherry industry and other fruit-picking industries uh, over in the Okanagan Valley, in uh, the Kootenays, and in other parts of the province. Um, but so far this year, we've experienced a, a shortfall of about 3,800 workers compared to last year.
2: And what has that meant for food production?
4: Well, what that means is that producers can't quite meet the production quotas or the production targets that they've set for this year. Um, not only are they facing fewer workers compared to last year, but a lot of farmers will have planned their, their operational output for expanded operations this year. I meaning that, that that loss is actually even more significant uh, compared to operations last year. So it might mean that, um, that production quotas are down this year, targets aren't quite met, um, so it's definitely a financial impact on the sector and it might also uh, impact a little bit of the variety in the selection at our grocery stores.
2: Right. Now, when this first happened, I remember people saying, well, listen, if we're going to be short temporary foreign workers, there's an awful lot of uh, you know Canadians who are out of work. Maybe they will look for a job in the industries. Did that happen?
4: It didn't. Um, and we saw a little bit of this out in New Brunswick. New Brunswick made the decision to temporarily bar the entry of temporary foreign workers in their province. And the hope was that uh, new Brunswickers would would pick up those jobs, um, but simply put, they didn't. Not in not in quite the numbers that I think producers really need. And, and I'll just uh, this actually speaks more to the second report that will be coming out. But one thing that we found is that the story of temporary workers in Canada isn't actually necessarily about displacing Canadian workers. What it's about is the transition from small family farms to large industrial uh, outputs. And, and when two farms merge, you know. The, the farmer doesn't get to keep the family with it. That has often been a lot of unpaid work on the farms. So the real story here is that actually temporary workers are actually replacing the small family farmers. And simply put, even though if farmers raise wages, they're not getting enough Canadians working at these, working at these jobs.
2: Right. And it's not even necessarily on the farms, is it? I notice that food processing is, is increasingly becoming an area where we're seeing more temporary foreign workers.
4: Yes, and that's actually, especially throughout in BC, um, BC seafood packing, uh, as well as other food, type, food processing. This is sort of the, the refinement of food, you know, when it goes from the farm to a factory to be packaged and refined into other types of food. That is increasingly reliant on temporary foreign workers as well.
2: And so why didn't uh, Canadians kind of migrate to those jobs, considering that they were so widely available right now?
4: Well, I think the hope here, especially among a lot of Canadians, is that their their layoffs are temporary. You know, if you've had a a job that you really like, uh, and unfortunately due to the circumstances, a lot of people are laid off from those jobs. But the hope is that as things begin to reopen, that you'll be called back to begin working there again. Right. And so somebody's waiting at home to res- resume their job might not uh, might be more comfortable waiting at home, perhaps on the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit or Employment Insurance. And rather do that than go work out in the field for a, decent, a few weeks with, with a, a very labour-intensive job.
2: Right. It's not for lack of trying, though, is it? I remember speaking to the Agriculture Minister and others. They tried to entice Canadians to take those jobs.
4: They did. They did. And, and I mentioned this before, and I'm... Again, so we get in the, in the second report, but uh, even farmers have been trying to entice people to these jobs. There's sometimes this, this notion that farmers aren't paying enough uh, to workers in the industry, but actually what we found is that when you adjust for inflation, farmers have been raising wages to workers for the past uh, 70 or so years.
2: Right, so to make it competitive, right? Because it is still a competitive market.
4: Absolutely, and, and um, simply put, uh, a lot of Canadians have decided over the past 70 or so years they don't necessarily want to work in agriculture. Um, And so one option is for farmers to mechanize their operations, you know, buy more tractors, buy more other pieces of equipment to make it easier. And and they've been doing that as well. But uh, there's a a major labor gap. Uh, Canadian agriculture used to employ about 1.2 million people after the Second World War. And now it's roughly about uh, 250,000 people. So that's very difficult labor Ooh. gap to replace.
2: Yeah, no kidding. Okay. so then, given what we've learned this year uh, and now in the next couple of years, how is that going to impact us then, Robert? Like does that mean less ver- like you know available produce or, or items in the grocery stores? Does it mean higher prices?
4: I think certainly this year there will be a, a major impact on on uh, prices and on, on availability at the grocery store. Um, again, we're about 3,800 workers short at the beginning of the season. These are the, this the critical period in which worker, which farmers are are seeding their fields, in which they're spraying their crops, in which they're, they're they really need people here. So I, I think you'll definitely have an impact on the sector. And one thing we have to remember is that when far, when even if TFWS arrive, they can't begin work right away. They have to go into uh, self isolation for a 14 day mm-hmm. period, which which of course I think is is the right thing to do, but it does have an impact. Um, now, B.C. is a bit different than other provinces here. That BC, The B.C. government has agreed to, to pay the hotel and, and food uh, for these workers while they self-isolate, which I think will help reduce it a little bit. But it's still going to be a difficult season. And going forward, I'm also not sure what impact this will have on the arrival of TFWs in the future. Temporarily, the Mexican government decided that they weren't going to let TFWs come to Canada because of the risk of their health. And I think that if certain steps aren't taken to proactively stem the spread of COVID-19 among TFWs, you could see uh, the Mexican and other governments be somewhat hesitant to send workers north.
2: Right, but that's hard for them as well, isn't it? Because there's an awful lot of people who rely on that.
4: Yeah, it actually does serve as a bit of a social safety net for a lot of Mexican families and and Jamaican families and others who work in the system. They they send money back home to support their families. Um, And and so certainly there's a a consideration there, but uh, especially if there's a significant risk to life um, and, and health among workers, they might choose to for, say um work at home and, and remain in mexico for the year so it's for sure not a, a certain thing and I, I think there are very um somewhat i shouldn't say easy but there there are there are quick steps the federal provincial governments can take here to sort of mitigate the risk to workers and also mitigate the risk to the labor supply uh, for producers
2: okay and what kind of quick steps
4: well one example we we have here is a. Uh, there is, there's one agency I immediately thought of, and I actually used to work in the sector myself uh, before moving over into research. Um, and one agency that's commonly on field, in fields, non farms, and uh, in production all the time is the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. They are often there to, to test food safety and quality for, for local consumption and export. Mm-hmm. And my thought is that right now, that's their focus, but given the circumstances, perhaps they should be given some more uh, regulatory authority to do inspections on working conditions as well. I I think expanding the BC model of of, um, a a public-private partnership here to help workers self-isolate safely. And then the big one is that actually TFWs don't get EI. Um, So if a a worker falls sick, uh, they aren't able to access sickness benefits like Canadians are. And so going back to your earlier point of this helps their families back home, if I'm from a a poverty-stricken country like, let's say, Jamaica, um or or where there's high poverty in mexico i might risk going to work even if i'm sick and showing symptoms because i'm worried i'm going to lose my income so even allowing them even for this season um, and perhaps going forward to access sickness benefits might be a, a, a good way of mitigating somebody going into the field with symptoms
2: robert thank you very much for talking to us about this this morning happy to join that is Robert Falconer, researcher at the University of Calgary's School of Public Policy, talking about this report released this morning on temporary foreign workers in Canadian agriculture. We know the government of BC and other governments across the country made a big push to show Canadians who were out of work that, hey, these jobs are available In the food production and processing industry, but as you heard Robert point out, didn't exactly work out that way with Canadians lining up to take those jobs, so you may notice that impact at the grocery store.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Once again, we have the Vancouver Park Board having to deal with issues of homelessness. Why is it when this is a problem that is seems like province wide all over the place, especially in our kind of big municipal communities here in Metro Vancouver? Is it left to like the Vancouver Park Board to be dealing with this issue? We're going to talk more about this now with the help of our morning contributor here, Nikki Meyer. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. There was supposed
5: to be this big vote on whether or not overnight camping would be allowed in Vancouver parks. Now, that was postponed they 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 went through some of it i shouldn't say it was fully postponed that's probably the wrong language to use the making the final decision was postponed because right. there were so many speakers who wanted to contribute their two cents on this they had upwards of 90 plus people who said wow. they had an opinion they wanted to share and they just simply didn't have time to get to all of those speakers so the final vote has been recessed until today. And I know that we're going to be speaking with a Commissioner from the Park Board a little bit later this morning about it as well. So this will be a, a continuing story. But yeah, essentially, they would allow uh, camping overnight, you'd have to pack up first thing in the morning and move your stuff. But one thing that residents in Strathcona found out at that meeting last night was that this wouldn't apply to encampments. So we have that growing encampment at Strathcona Park that now has 235 odd tents set up. And apparently this rule about pack your stuff up in the morning, as if anybody would actually listen to it anyways, would not apply right. to those encampments that we're seeing around Strathcona.
2: Right. And it just, the park board continually has this problem, right? Where they move them out of one place, whether it was Oppenheimer park, and then they set up right away and then nothing happens, nothing happens until it reaches this situation. I don't think that I have heard anything
5: Put into action by any government in this province to deal with the the real issue of homelessness here. That I've gone. Yeah, you know what? That was a great idea because this thing about overnight camping—it's absurd. I mean, you're going to have people packing their stuff up at seven a.m. and moving along. I mean, absolutely not. And look, but I know what, that that's hands- what they do now. I, no, they just keep—they just stay there. Of course, oh, they well, stay. In your, let's be honest. No one's leaving. You just your stuff is there and your stuff is there. And I mean, even there was a homeless advocate that Global News was talking to who said the same thing. We're not going to pack up our stuff and move. Counselor Swanson said the same thing. It would be cruel to make people pack up and move. What if they're sick? They have all their stuff and so forth. So this idea that people are just going to leave a park at seven in the morning and you're going to be able to go there and use it as of 7.30 a.m. for your morning workout is absurd. I mean, that's not going to happen.
2: It's interesting because I was thinking about what happens in places like Jericho Beach, right, over in Spanish banks and along Pacific Spirit Park, because that's what happens there. You get a lot of people who are homeless living in RVs and vehicles who camp there at night and then are, they go in the morning, right? Because they know that there'll be patrols coming by and telling them to move on. Uh, so the tents, is just it's kind of like a similar situation there. I think it's a little bit different with the RVs because your stuff is kind of contained
5: to begin with. There might also be a slightly different demographic of homeless that we're dealing with as well. Uh, Maybe some of those people are also just kind of summertime campers. I'm not too sure about the RV people. They don't seem to be talked about nearly as much when we have these discussions about homelessness. Uh, It generally seems to be the tent people
2: who others find to be a bit more problematic when it comes to setting up in their neighborhood. Parks. Right. You just wonder, though, like given all the efforts that have been made, right, during the pandemic to find people housing, how how did they not find housing for the people who set up these tents, or did they not want well, housing? That's my, I guess, that's what I wonder.
3: Well, yeah,
5: and I think it's a fair question to ask as well. And and the ways that they have tried to resolve this in the province, and this this goes up to a provincial level now, is to buy up these motels, and they've been doing that right. in, in cities around around. Uh, bc but that's problematic in itself too again that's not a solution that really seems to be working and now you have business owners saying that they've been displaced because suddenly a a home the the hotel they were functioning in or
2: nearby has turned into a homeless shelter well you make excellent points nikki and you know what we're going to bring them up with trisha bark uh, trisha barker who's the vancouver park board commissioner joining us just after the seven o'clock news so thank you thanks It's been a lot of concern, uh, a lot of discussion since this pandemic situation started and the lockdowns happened over what happens to women and families and children who are stuck in domestic violence situations. Well, there's a new app called My Plan, which is designed to help women who are experiencing domestic violence exit those harmful relationships. Colleen Varco is a professor at the UBC School of Nursing, and she helped work on the app. Colleen, can you just kind of walk me through
5: the general concept of the app?
6: Right. Well, the general concept is that women often have really complex challenges in their lives when they have abusive partners, and so it's really helping women to to sort through that complexity. And it offers her a bunch of tools, like to help sort out her own priorities, to make sense of her situation. It gives her information on not just where to go, but information, for example, about abuse, information about resources. So just for example, a lot of times women really get the message that it's not abuse unless there's a lot of physical violence. And yet we know that mental, emotional, financial abuse are the things that really grind people down and often goes unrecognized. So We help women to take stock of those situations, to set their own priorities, and then to access those resources and supports that they might need.
5: It sounds like offering a a large amount of information, but making it easy to access, is really important here. Because from what I understand, it's actually a fairly small percentage of women who are experiencing domestic violence who will actually reach out and look for support.
6: Exactly. Yeah, somewhere around uh, 17% of women who... Experiencing violence from a partner will actually access those resources. So, um, you know, this is, is, we originally thought that we would reach those women who didn't access resources. But what actually happens is women, um, use it in conjunction with resources as well as, you know, being really accessible for women who, for various reasons, are unable to reach out or, Um, You know, feel that they'd be stigmatized or, you know, for whatever reason don't access resources.
5: And I guess also to clarify, this isn't a replacement for 911. If you're in imminent danger, this app doesn't have the function of what 911 does.
6: Oh, absolutely. It's not a replacement for 911. If you're in danger, of course, you have to use 911. That's no question. And it's not a replacement for other services either because community-based domestic violence uh, folks are really important and can be supportive of women and people in housing, people who are uh, work with children who are, are exposed to violence. All of those resources are really, really important, and we actually try to encourage women to get to those resources and get to them safely and know what to expect.
5: And one feature that I think is so brilliant about this app is because For so many women, there's a fear of reaching out in case he finds out that you have been. But with this app, there is an unwanted snooping feature, isn't there?
6: Oh, yes. Yeah, and there's lots of safety features. There's instructions on how to do incognito browsing. There's quick escape plans. Um, There's lots of safety features built right in. So even if a woman is caught by surprise, uh, she can get out of the app and there's no information left in there.
5: Right. And it's my understanding too, that uh, if she is to press a quick exit button on the app, it leads to this very generic Google search page.
6: Yeah. Yeah. It, it goes to a very neutral looking screen and um, you know, it's a list. We have a neutral, t- you know, title for it, my plan. Um, and so we're hoping that that will help it be safe, and we, you know, we've tested it with a lot of women, and so far we have not had any difficulties uh, in terms of safety.
5: For anyone who's interested in downloading the app, maybe they want to tell someone they know about the app. Where can they go for more information?
6: Well, they can go to our to our website, but they can just go to the uh, app store and download it. It's called My Plan, and our, our website's also <laughs> uh, myplan.ca.
5: Colleen, thank you so much for your time and for the work that you did on this app, My Plan.
6: Well, no problem. I really appreciate getting the word out for us. So thanks a lot, Nate.
0: This is Mornings with
2: Simi. Well, there was no decision on a motion to approve overnight camping in Vancouver Parks last night at the meeting of the Vancouver Park Board. It was expected to happen. It did not. However, they reconvened tonight and that is when a vote is expected to take place. So to talk more about this, it is quite contentious. We're joined now by Park Board Commissioner Tricia Barker. Good morning and thank you for being
7: here. Thank you. Good morning, Simi.
2: Where did this bylaw idea come from?
7: Well, it was first presented to the board when we were looking at getting an injunction for Oppenheimer. And uh, we were told, and that was a year ago, uh, we were told that you couldn't get an injunction unless um, we had dealt with everyone's um, charter rights. So the bylaw had to be changed before we could um, even approach an injunction. And so that was when we first started to hear about Um, the needs for this bylaw change, because we had to, you know, say people who were homeless could um, be in a park, but we had the uh, right to be able to move them out in the morning.
2: Right. So the idea being that if you don't have a specific rule that says you're not supposed to be there overnight, uh, there's no way to kick them out for being there overnight. Absolutely. Okay. So now, though, it's come to the situation where you still have homeless people in parks. Do you really expect them, if this motion is passed, to get up in the morning and pack up their stuff and go?
7: No, we don't. And I think the, um, the great thing about uh, everyone phoning in uh, last night and people are still going to be phoning into the park board tonight with their stories, we are getting hundreds of emails from people, and there's a lot of different perspectives on this. But um, I think that there's a lot of people talking about, you know, we're seeing this... Uh, in our parks right now, and you know they call three one one, they call nine one one, and we don't have the manpower to come and move people out as it stands. So even if this bylaw went through, how would that change? I mean, we just and especially with the pandemic, we're short on staff. Uh, we're short on funds to be dealing with this. So it's I, and I think the public has caught on with that that we could make this change. And we would have people in our parks, and there's no way that... Um, and, But one thing is, this homeless issue, it's much bigger than the park board. It's much bigger. You know, it, it's a huge issue, and we're all very concerned about it. But we're hearing from people, should the parks be the place where we put our homeless people, and then that makes it so the people in the neighbourhood can't use the parks as easily and sometimes are very fearful about being there.
2: Right. So then what can the park board do about that then?
7: Like what level of
2: government do you reach out to and say, listen, this, we can't deal with this. We're, we're being stuck dealing with this. What do we do about it?
7: Well, we have been reaching out to the different levels and the city, provincial, and even federal. And to say, this shouldn't be dropping on us. You know, you must step up. And that was the, the um, getting Oppenheimer uh, dismantled that tent city was really good because uh, we'd offered those people places, uh, shelter, places to stay, but also the board right now, uh, they have showed that they won't be asking for an injunction. You know, we've got the Coke Green Alliance, and so um, with all of the violence that went on in Oppenheimer. We brought it forward a few times to get a vote, to get the injunction, and they would not vote for it. It was only Commissioner Cooper and I that kept on trying to get that injunction to make that area safe again. And we're seeing the same with Strachcona. So I can't imagine that um, even if we changed the bylaw, that an injunction wouldn't be requested.
2: You can understand then when you describe the situation like that, how frustrated people are when they hear about this in the news. Oh, of
4: course,
7: uh, I feel their frustration, and that really came across with so many of the callers last night. Um, you know, this is, we're, we're seeing again, and Strathcone is much bigger than Oppenheimer. And, um, you know, there's already re- lots of reports of violence there. So there's a great concern about what yeah. is going on, and can the Park Board deal with it? I don't think so. And would this bylaw make any difference um, you know, it's going to be interesting. We get to hear a lot more people speak tonight. And as I said, we're getting hundreds of emails in. I appreciate everyone's input. I think it's really good that we hear from people who live in that neighbourhood yeah. or live in parks where they're seeing this happening all the time.
2: So you're you're deciding to pass this bylaw that you need in order to enforce future injunctions, even though you've got a park board that won't vote for future injunctions.
7: Yes. And what we're seeing is now people are jumping onto, well, then people can just sleep in parks. So like, then don't you vote against the bylaw? So at least until we know we have some mechanism to deal with the 10 cities. I mean, it's, it, there's so many things to be thinking about. And uh, it's, it's, it's just not an easy decision to make. But, um, you know, I, I really get everyone's frustration yeah. in this situation. Has there been outreach? No easy answer.
2: Has there been outreach with the people who are camping in Strathcona Park like how can how can we help them? Is there a shortage of housing? Can we move them off somewhere? Like that's what happened with Oppenheimer eventually, you know, people were moved into housing. What is the situation here?
7: There's ongoing look for looking for housing, but we do see that there's some people who don't want the housing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's become very apparent. We've you know been around for a long time in this city. There's some people who are more comfortable uh, living in a park or living um, you know wherever they're going to be. If, whether it's on Hastings, that's where they feel best. And um, you know, there's lots of now we're hearing all the rules and regulations about going into some of these shelters. So um, you know, it, it's it's not a simple answer. There's no simple answer. But one of my greatest concerns is, do we hurt the people in these neighbourhoods? We know how important green space is for people right now. Um, We're taking away these people's green spaces and uh, with that limited space to try and fix a problem, but we know it's not really fixable.
2: Is there a way for the Park Board to work with the City of Vancouver on this then, to find a more suitable space for people that is not a park
7: space? We've been looking for that for a long time, and that came up constantly during the Oppenheimer. Uh, I would like to think that they are trying to deal with their homeless situation that we all have without just telling people, we'll just go to a park. And I think it's we all need to come together to work on this, but I don't think the answer is just to say, let's open up parks um, to let people camp there all the time.
2: What is the relationship like then with the city of Vancouver?
7: Uh, I think it's back and forth all the time. I mean, you know, everyone seems to be pretty fractured in the city right now Yeah, uh, about um, what they want. But I think we have to get over all of that and just look at your normal person on the street saying, can you help? And it's to be compassionate to the people who are homeless And the people who just want to go to a park, I think that we have to step aside, put aside everything else that we talk about and how can we help those people.
2: I guess from where I'm sitting and from watching this unfold now for the last couple of years, it's like the Vancouver Park Board is reluctant to deal with it because they're like, we shouldn't be having to deal with the homeless problem. City of Vancouver says, well, they're in the parks and that's the park board. Uh, And then you just keep getting the same back and forth all the time.
7: Yes, we get that same back and forth. And people have uh, their own agendas about what they would like to see done. And that sometimes hurts the overall what's best for just the people in Vancouver. So
2: like too many agendas, do you think?
7: Uh, Maybe too many agendas.
2: Okay, so where does that leave us with this situation then? So tonight is the vote. How do you think this is going to go?
7: Well, I don't like to ever guess about how other people are going to vote And we do have a whole bunch more speakers. I hope that everyone really takes the time to listen to all the speakers and really hear their stories because um, that's really important. And maybe, you know, that can change people's minds one way or the other. But, yeah, until that vote happens and the debate goes on, I should be very late tonight. um, You know, I don't like to guess.
2: All right. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. A release today for British Columbians paints a picture of cautious optimism with a long road ahead of us. That is Finance Minister Carol James last week. That's after we learned that the unemployment rate had dropped down to 13%. But today, today is a big one. We're going to get a fiscal update on the financial health of the province at this point. Now people are hoping, of course, to see things trending towards normal, but it's all up in the air. We just know the news isn't going to be great. Remember, the federal government fiscal update last week forecast a budget of a deficit of almost $350 billion. Well, let's talk more about how businesses are feeling in anticipation of this. Greater Vancouver Board of Trade President and CEO Bridget Anderson is with us now. She's also a member of the Premier's Economic Recovery Task Force. Good morning, Bridget.
8: Good morning, Finney
2: Now, I know, are businesses kind of bracing themselves for this update today as well?
8: Absolutely. It is going to be tough news today, like it was out of Ottawa. I mean, you mentioned the uh, deficit that the federal government spoke of $343 billion. This is going to be a slow and fragile recovery. Some businesses have closed and they won't won't reopen. Other businesses aren't able to operate profitably under These new restrictions, consumer behavior has changed drastically and tourism is a sector particularly important for our province that just is going to take a very, very long time to come back.
2: Are there positive signs out there?
8: Well, absolutely. Uh, We are seeing the economy reopen, and so that's why I say slow and fragile. I think people need to recognize that, especially in this time of Phase 3, where we're seeing some businesses come back online, and then we're also seeing um, a bit of a hybrid approach for many businesses, where they're doing some of their their business digitally and then some in person. Uh, But there are some sectors that are really, really struggling, and particularly in the tourism sector, which is going to be very hard. But, you know, yes, it is slow. And so I think uh, lots of, uh, there's been lots of great phrases, you know, it's, it's a, a marathon and not a race. And I think that's the, really that the mindset. But for the business community, you know, when we talk about a slow and fragile recovery, it's really, really important that the B.C. government and really the federal government and municipal governments understand that at this time of recovery that's so fragile, There cannot be any extra harm done to businesses. So no extra cost, no administrative changes, or no red tape do not make it more difficult for businesses to operate.
2: And even moving forward, though, you mentioned consumer behavior is changing. Uh, That must be very scary for a lot of businesses out there, because there is no guarantee at this point that things are, at any point, going to just go back to the way they were before.
8: And that's why one of the the things that we have been talking about from the beginning is about the need for investments in the digital economy or digital infrastructure, and and really watching and helping um, businesses to be able to do a transformation here, um, because as you say, you know people are shopping online; they're maybe not going out to restaurants as much. Maybe they're ordering and staying in. Um, And businesses, generally offices, are a lot of them are still people are working from home or maybe a hybrid approach, as I mentioned, where a couple of days in the office and a couple at home. So a very, very different time. And, you know, I think one of the things that people are finding um, most challenging is not understanding or not able to see a clear path forward is when things are going to return to normal. There are no, um, there's there's no kind of certainty about when that might happen. Uh, And so it is going to be very fragile.
2: Is there enough support at this point, do you think, for industries like tourism, which is so huge for us here?
8: You know, I, I'm also part of a, a national tourism roundtable, and I think the tourism sector is being very vocal about some of the needs and uh, recognizing as well that part of it is in lockstep with confidence and being able to have the restrictions eased and people being able to travel internationally. So um, there are some measures being taken, but more can be done for sure. But then understanding that, you know, it is going to take um, uh, restrictions being eased for international travel to come back in order to get things back to where they were.
2: So what are you looking for today then, Bridget? Are you, are you waiting to hear like, a plan perhaps for getting back on track or is it still too early for that?
8: No, it's never too early to see a plan, and the business community wants to see strong leadership and a clear plan, both to manage our way out of this crisis and then also going forward. I, You know, we understand that the government is in the middle of a six-week consultation process, but it is time to also start setting expectations about where that plan is, how it's going to come together, and what individuals and businesses can expect from the province going forward, other jurisdictions have come out with their plan already, so I'm really hoping that uh, Minister James will be able to start giving some idea about where some of those investments are going to be to get the economy back on track. For example, are there going to be investments in infrastructure? Um, are there is there going to be investments um, around in childcare? So, being able to kind of Start framing that up, Mm -hmm. understanding that still some of the public consultation that won't end for a couple of weeks. But it is really important that we see a clear plan that a shapes up where we're going to go and and B is really no more harm done to business. Do not make it more more difficult for businesses to operate.
2: You mentioned childcare. Is that something that the Board of Trade would like to see happen?
8: You know, it's been very clear we're both parents and uh, my kids and your kids are older, but in this time where people have had to work from home, I think it has really hit home about just how difficult it is when schools are not back in session and you're trying to manage work and your your children's education and child care. And there needs to be some flexible options around child care. And and the government, I know, has really been listening to this. and, And I think it's really, really hit home for uh, the business community, just how important it is to have some flexible options for parents.
2: Oh, I think that's so true. Bridget, thank you. Thanks so much, Simi. That's Bridget Anderson, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, also a member of the Premier's Economic Recovery Task Force. I think that is so true, what Bridget just mentioned there, that if there's one thing that's going to come out of this in terms of the business community and something that will be different, I think it is that Realization that child care is a huge factor for parents. I mean, it always was, but that now that kind of recognition between the business community and parents and business community understanding, if I want to get the best out of my employees, then I need to help them get child care, help them look after their children. Uh, so we'll be looking for that fiscal update right here on 980 CKNW.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: We were just talking with Bridget Anderson from the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade about the government's fiscal update, which is coming today. And a lot of that will it'll be very important for people to look at that, to see how our government is responding. Every step of the way in this COVID-19 pandemic, of course, people are forming opinions and we want to know how people are feeling. So let's find out. Insights West has been doing some polling on this topic. Steve Mossop is the president and joins us now with their latest. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Simi. All right, so what did you find out?
4: Wow, the numbers are quite shocking. We have approval ratings that are really through the roof. Uh, Premier Horgan's approval rating is 68%. And we haven't seen in the eight years that I've been tracking at Insights West here, uh, we haven't seen that level any time in the past. In fact, we've never seen a a sitting premier with more than 50% approval ratings going back to 2013.
2: Okay, so that, I mean, understandable given the emergency situation here, right? The key, I guess, will be to see if this lasts.
4: Yes, and, and, you know, federally, we started to see some of the shine being taken off Trudeau. The last poll results I saw showed at 51%. So there there definitely has come a point where, you know, due to spending or any kind of a slip up, there is a potential for it to go down.
2: Okay, so what else did you notice? What is the number one thing on people's minds?
4: Uh, COVID trumps everything else, as we would expect. But what was interesting about that is that it's not maybe as high as what you would think. So 32% choose it as the most important issue facing the province. That leaves the remainder who says it's something else. So housing prices uh, maintain a high second place at 13%, uh, economy 11%, health care 7 homelessness 6 So a bunch of small things add up and, and compete with uh, the number one issue. The one thing that jumped out at me, though, is that among 18 to 24-year-olds, it's uh, housing is the number one concern at 24%, and COVID is actually a second-place uh, finisher. Really? Mm-hmm. I know. that's It's quite shocking.
2: And what about the economy, though? Because like that seems to be the big concern, well, today, obviously, with the fiscal update, everybody worried about jobs and things moving. That wasn't number one?
4: No, uh, in fact, uh, not yet, but I think it will soon be. Uh, other polls that we've seen have shown that Canadians and British Columbia, in particular think that the worst is behind us. And the more that sentiment mm. carries through, uh, I think those others will start to run up.
2: Yeah, I wonder if now is when the pressure starts, right, Steve, like you've dealt with this emergency situation now, it's going to be the expectations of, well, are you going to fix us?
4: Well, there was a leger poll out this morning that said uh, Canadians are still reluctant to curb spending. They want to see the federal government spend and save Canadians from the economic disaster that would be there without it.
2: Okay, so is BC's picture, do you think, a little bit different than other provinces? Like, are other premiers enjoying that same kind of big bump?
4: No, if you look at, and you guys have covered this, the Angus Reid Institute has covered polls on this uh, many times. And Premier Horgan is is one or two in the country as far as approval ratings. He's he, he, Ever since he was elected, and our results show the same, he's had very high approval ratings from day one uh, they haven't really fallen off as most premiers do after sitting in yeah. parliament for three years, but uh, the, the, this, this number of sixty-eight percent is really quite through the roof.
2: And what about party-wise? How does that break down?
4: Party-wise, it's uh, it's along party lines, but what we do see is a, a, a quite a large number—about twenty-five percent of past Liberal voters are giving him high approval ratings, and that's unusual. Usually, you see party lines. Uh, uh, supporting their own leaders. In this case, Wilkinson's approval rating has dropped from thirty-five to thirty percent. So he hasn't done very well in the last three months.
2: Hmm, okay, and and then that doesn't translate necessarily to party support either, does it?
4: Well, party support. If you look at if if, if an election were held right now, the NDP would receive forty-seven percent of the decided popular vote, and that number is also off uh, off the charts. We don't typically see numbers uh, that in any political party in in British Columbia for decades, really.
2: Yeah. Interesting times. All right, Steve, thank you.
4: Thank you, Simi.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Over the last few weeks, you may have heard the story of Lucy. This is the little Vancouver baby who really needs what has turned out to be an incredibly expensive treatment to save her life. And the parents of Lucy have been fighting any way they can to try to raise $3 million for what has been called the most expensive drug in the world. Nikki Reitmeyer has more.
5: Imagine finding out that your child needed a life-saving drug. Without it, she would likely pass away within the first two years of her young life. The problem is that this life-saving medication is the most expensive drug in the world. Baby Lucy was born on April 1st. While the rest of us were worried about the progressing pandemic, her parents, including her mother, Laura Van Dormel, were relieved. Lucy appeared to be a healthy baby girl.
9: Lucy was born a perfectly healthy newborn, honestly. Uh, we thought she was absolutely amazing and the perfect addition to our family. And we took her home thinking that she was perfectly healthy. And it wasn't until a few weeks later we started to notice some changes and some differences in her. And eventually, at five weeks, she was diagnosed with spinal muscular atrophy, or SMA type 1.
5: Spinal muscular atrophy. It's a genetic disorder that progressively destroys motor neurons. Those are cells in the brain and spinal cord that control so many movements we take for granted. Walking, talking, breathing, swallowing muscles gradually weaken and waste away.
9: We started to notice that her movement started to decline. And when I took her to my routine midwife appointment, very thankful that the midwives actually flagged that her reflexes were also delayed or not quite strong. So they recommended we see a pediatrician and she recommended we see a neurologist. And all of those steps led us to BC Children's Hospital. And it was a pretty quick diagnosis from there.
5: SMA type 1, which Lucy's been diagnosed with, is the most severe.
9: It's the most severe form because it's seen in infants younger than six months. So uh, typically the earlier the symptoms present, the more severe the disorder is.
5: Imagine going from one moment not even knowing a disease exists to the next moment when suddenly you find out your child has it.
9: We had never heard of SMA before before. When they mentioned it to us in the hospital the first time, it didn't phase us because we had no idea what it was and we hadn't Googled it. It wasn't until we you know, sat down, looked it up on the Internet, and the first sentence we read was, you know, SMA type 1 babies rarely live to their second birthday. And uh, the weight of that sentence was just incredibly crushing. I will never forget it. I will never, ever forget reading those words
5: but there is a glimmer of hope for lucy and her family
9: our doctor you know when she gave us the diagnosis she did tell us there is reason for hope the medicine for sma has come a long way in in a very recent period of time
5: zolgensma is a groundbreaking new gene therapy for sma you only need one dose to alter the underlying genetic cause of spinal muscular atrophy. It may even permanently stop the progression of the disease. But the problem is that it's the world's most expensive drug, costing nearly $2.9 million Canadian.
9: We literally think it will change the trajectory of her life, uh, give her a better quality of life, and, and hopefully give her a life. The results that we've seen from other children, we've spoken with other moms of children who have received this, it's pretty miraculous that their babies went from not being able to move very much to, you know, moving. I was actually just watching a little video of a little girl in the U.S. who received this drug, and she's walking, which is unheard of for a spinal muscular atrophy type 1 child.
5: Not only is this life-changing drug the most expensive in the world, it has also not yet been approved in Canada.
9: So because it's not accessible in Canada, there's a few ways to get it. Um, be entered into a lottery, which we are, but we know that, you know, as with any lottery, it's a long shot. And then also to, to pay for the drug. And um, we can import it and have her treated. This drug is only available to children under the age of two, And the sooner they receive this treatment, um, the better their results are. So she's already three months and we want her to have access as quickly as possible. We might not be able to wait for Canada to approve this drug. So uh, as parents, you do whatever you can for your child.
5: With the clock ticking to save Lucy's life, more than 40,000 people have contributed to a GoFundMe page that aims to raise the nearly $3 million needed to help pay for her medication. The campaign is called Life for Lucy, Conquering SMA. Even Vancouver-born actor Ryan Reynolds made a financial contribution. The fund now sits at over $1.75 million, well on their way to achieving that incredible goal.
9: The reception to her story has been overwhelming and uplifting. Yeah, we
2: are blown away by the reception.
5: For 980 CKNW, I'm Nikki Reitmeier.
2: And if you would like to help out with that, all you have to do is Google the words Life for Lucy and you will see the GoFundMe right at the top of the page there. And as Nikki mentioned, they are at about over right now $1.7 million. They still have a ways to go to hit that $3 million mark.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Let's talk about the numbers here in BC that we are seeing for COVID 19. We all carefully watch them, right? So we did see a downward trend for quite a while there, but we're starting to inch up a little bit. So yesterday we heard that BC had 62 new cases over a three-day period. So that means we averaged about 20. And that's been the case for about a week now, it seems. What it means is that the active cases in BC of people being treated for this is now more more than 200. That's the first time in weeks that we have seen that. But how does this work in terms of the tipping point when it comes to the numbers? Well, Sally Otto is an evolutionary biologist who also specializes in mathematical modeling at UBC. And she joins us now to talk more about what is happening. Sally, thanks so much for being here.
1: You're welcome. My pleasure. So
2: can we kind of extrapolate from these numbers, like what we see happening with COVID-19?
1: I think we're seeing a trend. Um, As you mentioned, there's now been six days in a row of over 20, and that compares to all of June, where the average was only between 10 and 11 new cases per day. So that trend is very disconcerting, and it does um, mirror what we're seeing in other places, where after a period of people really staying at home and trying to reduce contacts, They started to relax, move around more, um, get back to work, get back to play, and then the cases rise. I was just crunching the numbers this morning, too, and noticed that almost half of the new cases, 46% in the last week, have been under 30 years old. So, again, that mirrors what we're seeing in other places where our young people, our youth, are getting it.
2: Now, mathematically, do we reach like a tipping point with the numbers at some point where that slow increase starts to multiply a bit faster?
1: You know, this is a funny disease because the modeling, it's not about the disease. It's really about human behavior. And so it really is a matter of what we will do with these numbers. When we uh, we know we've doubled in the number of new cases in the last week, Mm -hmm. will that cause us to be more careful, to put on our masks? when we're out in public to avoid the crowds. And if we're going to socialize, socialize outside and keep the distances. So if we keep the behavior, if we respond in our behavior, we can keep these numbers down. So it's really up to us whether or not this turnaround point is going to see the kind of massive spikes that we're seeing in Florida and Texas or if we're able in B.C. to keep it down.
2: Right, and so we we have to reach that point that because we're not going to make it completely go away, but I guess the idea is to keep those numbers as low as possible.
1: That's right, and it really does require our behavioral change. Um, Google uh, has been monitoring people's mobility lately and um, tracking those who have the Google tracking on, right, in British Columbia. And what we've, um, if you remember, Dr. Bonnie Henry is. Um, argue that we need to keep to about 60% of our normal activity levels and contact levels in order to keep the disease from spreading. So, and that depends on the model, so, but, but certainly um, far below normal.
2: Right, so we can't co- go, completely go back to doing what we were no, doing before.
1: No, and the Google Mobility Report is suggesting we are. We are, are just slowly inching up week by week in terms of our movement rates, and right now we're only at about thirteen um, percent less than normal, which the modeling suggests is nowhere near enough to keep the disease from spreading.
2: Okay, so from the numbers and the way that you're describing it, then it sounds like an awful lot of people took this thing for granted.
1: That's right. Got tired of being hemmed up at home, myself included. Um, but we, this is not the time for us to relax. And I, you know, I'm really um, I very much agree with Bonnie Henry's approach. We can do this. We can conquer it. But it does going to take all of us working together um, and reducing contacts. When you put on a mask, it can seem scary and impersonal, but really what you're doing is a kindness. You're um, saying, I don't think I have this disease, but I don't know. And I don't want you to get it.
2: So, Sally, do we need to talk more about it from that perspective as well? Because it seems like we people started to turn that corner, right? Do we need a reminder, perhaps, that, hey, the numbers going in this direction is not a good thing?
1: This is our reminder. Doubling the number um, in the last week is our reminder that we need to step it up and ramp it up again and just be much more careful um, as we go about our summer activities. Things like camping and hiking where there aren't so many people is a great thing to do in the summer. And I think that's what we're being encouraged to do. But crowded parties, not a good time.
2: Yeah, I know. I've got to get that message out there to people. Sally, thank you so much for your time on this. You're welcome. Thank you. That's Sally Otto with the Department of Zoology. She's a professor at UBC and also takes an expert on mathematical modeling and says the numbers are not going in the right direction for us. We've perhaps loosened up too much. And she made an excellent point there where she pointed out that Dr. Henry told us over and over and over again, that in order for us to keep the virus at bay, we need to stay at 60% of our activities and the things that we would normally do. Well, according to that Google mobility data, we are not at 60%. We are more than that. So perhaps it's time to rein it in a little bit to remind people that parties like what we saw in the Okanagan, Not a good idea. We're going to be talking more about that. And don't forget, update coming at 3 o'clock this afternoon with Dr. Bonnie Henry.